welcome to the last 9.30 service ever at Prodigal Church. Uh, next week, we move our time 30 minutes earlier, so this service will already be uh, basically finished by now. So it's a 9 a.m. and a 10.30, and so mark your calendars, write it down. We also have some invite cards for you guys um, on the way out, and it has the new service times, and you'll also see it on the trailer uh, as well later on today. So next week, 9 and 10.30. I'm a huge sports fan. I, I love almost every sports movie, uh, Hoosiers. Uh, Miracle, Remember the Titans, uh, Bull Durham. Uh, I, I love them all. And one of the reasons I love sports movies is because it takes you backstage, right, into the locker room at halftime and these memorable, powerful speeches. Perhaps one of the most well-known pregame speeches actually took place in 1961. It was July 1961, and the 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team were gathered together for the first day of training camp. In the previous season, they had ended with a heartbreaking defeat when the Packers squandered a lead in, late in the fourth quarter and lost the NFL championship to the Eagles. And so the Green Bay players had been thinking about this and marinating on this all offseason, and they were eager to advance their game to the next level um, so that they can win that championship. And their coach, Vince Lombardi, this guy right here, had a different idea. He was going to realign the team starting from the very beginning. And as the story goes, he stood in front of his players and he said, gentlemen, this is a football. That's how he started it. And he began to go over the basics, the kind of fundamentals that our elementary school sons and daughters learn. And he says, this is a football. He started from the very beginning. These are professional athletes. They were moments away from winning the biggest event in their field. Yet he started at the very beginning. And it, Lombardi's methodical alignment of fundamentals continued throughout training camp. Each player reviewed how to, how to catch, how to block, how to run. Uh, and they opened up the playbook, started at page one. And one of their wide receivers, Max McGee, said, Coach, slow down. <laughs> You're going too fast. And uh, Lombardi grinned, and yet he began at page one with the very first word. His team would become the best in the league at the tasks everyone else took for granted. Six months later, the Green Bay Packers beat the New York Giants 37-0 to win the NFL championship, and Lombardi began a streak where he became one of the greatest coaches of all time. Here's a picture of him winning that championship with his players holding him up in the air. It's an iconic photo, and it all started with this is a football. He's saying, hey guys, I know you're champions, and I know we've got momentum, but we can't lose sight of the vision. What Lombardi understood is that teams, organizations, churches have the tendency to, to drift, right? No, there's no organization that just wakes up and goes, you know what, let's just make some terrible decisions today and ruin everything. No, it never happens. One of the reasons organizations and teams, businesses, churches drift off mission is because they assume clarity. They assume they know why they're there. That's why Lombardi would get at the very first practice of the preseason and say, this is a football. Let me remind you of why we're here. Let me remind you of our vision and our mission. And so every once in a while here at Prodigal Church, I want to stand up here because one of the ways I can serve you and serve this amazing church is to remind you of what our vision is and what our mission is. And I want to remind you what God has called us to do and what our main thing is. And this morning is our preseason talk. Okay, this morning is our, this is a football moment. And that's what's happening this whole sermon series. 
This is, our, this is a football. This is our basics. This is who God has wired and called Prodigal Church to be. It's, our, it's us calling a timeout. It's our halftime speech. It's reminding us of our why, our what, and our how. And I just couldn't be more excited for this sermon series. Uh, we're going to be exploring this in our series called This Is Us. Prodigal Church, we exist to love God, love people. This is our purpose. Now, there are a lot of churches and pastors that will stand up on the stage and tell people, tell the people, tell the church, what we're against and what you should be against. They want to know what their stances are, our stances are. People will often ask me to meet and discuss our policies and our stance on certain issues. And I just want to let everyone know that we're not about policies, we're about people. That's the kind of church we are. And uh, listen, I'd be happy to meet with you and talk to you about why we do what we do and our stances or whatever. But I and I, and I understand your heart, but I think it's an adventure in, in missing the point. Uh, we want to be known for what we're for not, what for, not what we're against. We do. Uh, we want to be known for what we're for, not what we're against. And we're for Jesus. We're for the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. We are for diversity, all kinds of people, all kinds of views and let's point everyone to Jesus. We are about belonging. You belong before you believe. You don't got to behave a certain way before you belong. You belong as is, just as you are. Uh, we believe in being real and honest and authentic, uh, being vulnerable. So we want that to come out not only um, in like small groups and as you walk in here, but also hopefully from me that, that I, I hopefully I come across as normal um, and not this hyper spiritual because we want to be real. And we also know there's no such thing as super spiritual. I don't have extra access to God that you don't have. Uh, we're all in this journey together. And we want to be a church that is for the hurting, the, the lost, the oppressed, the suffering in our world because God's heart is for them. Uh, that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be known for those things. And that's what this series is about. Um, at Prodigal Church, there is no us versus them. There is no them. It's all us. And let's do this journey together of following Jesus and becoming more like him and making a difference for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I would be remiss to say, that uh, as we uh, start today, September 1st, 2019, that I didn't tell you that today marks the 13-year wedding anniversary of my, me and my wife, Sarah. Here's a picture of us. Yep, we were kids. Uh, she's here. She didn't know I was going to show a picture. Um, I couldn't do this without her. And honestly, I wouldn't do it without her. Uh, she... she um, no one loves Prodigal Church more than she does. And uh, no one helps me become more Christ-like more than she does. And um, I'm just so, so, so grateful for her and her leadership um, in our home and in, in this church. And this morning, we tackle our first core value. Our first core value is Jesus. It's Jesus. Hope you noticed the core values as you walked in this morning. Uh, and kind of explore those together over the next several weeks. When my son was around three or four, he didn't know how to lie. Uh, and sometimes, believe it or not, 
our, our kids are naughty, just like everybody else's, okay? Like, I know some of you guys think that, like, when our kid messes up, like, we all get together and sing Kumbaya and hold hands and, like, recite Bible verses. Nope, nope. There's sometimes raising of our voices. And uh, uh, my, my son, he didn't know how to lie. And so I go, Dex, you know, did you throw a toy at Jesslyn today at Sunday school? And he says, yes. And I would say, Dex, were you mean to mommy today when daddy was at work? And he would say, yes. Dex, did you pull your pants down the middle of a party and go pee-pees on the grass in front of everybody? Yes, that happened. Actually, at our pre-launch service. <laughs> Sorry, Jim and Dina, it was in your backyard. Um, so as a consequence, we'll put him in timeout. Or we do something else, thank you very much, and we tell him there will always be a consequence. Like clockwork, as soon as I say the word go to timeout or consequence, he says, I want to be a good boy. I want to be a good boy. Tears in his eyes. Dad, I want to be a good boy. I just don't want a consequence. I don't want the consequence. Punishment, judgment, consequence. These are terrifying terms growing up as a child, yes? And these are still terrifying people today. We picture God against us. Here's a picture of an atheist bus campaign in the United States and the USA. It says this, uh, there's probably no God, so, so now stop worrying and enjoy your life. This was a massive campaign not too long ago. It spread throughout Europe and even came to the United States. There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, there was a debate among the atheist groups about using the word definitely or the word probably, and they went with probably. But that's not the interesting part. The most fascinating line in this campaign is the phrase, stop worrying. Stop worrying. It's predicated on the belief that if there is a God, there is something we should be worried about. In other words, if there is a God, we're all screwed. Because as we all know from religion, God is judgmental, he's mean, and he likes to throw people in hell, and you're one of them. And so there's this idea of God is against us rather than for us. And this has been so propagated by Christians and non-Christians alike that the antidote for our worry of death is atheism. They're projecting that, that, that to alleviate our worry of death, just don't believe in God at all. Well, I can live in a much better universe than that, so thank you very much. It's a universe where God doesn't even exist. And all this is predicated on the idea that God is against us and not for us. And then Jesus arrives on the scene as Emmanuel, God with us. Concrete, flesh and blood proof that God is not against us, God is for us. He is so for mankind that he'd rather go to hell than go to heaven without us. That's our God. God's not against us. Check out this verse in Hebrews. This is amazing. It says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Did you catch, catch that? Jesus frees us from our fear of death. God isn't up there wanting to send lightning bolts and, you know, when, whenever we mess up. No, he's not up there waiting for a chance to put you in time out to give you consequences. Jesus doesn't want you to fear. Jesus wants you, period. He wants you. 
Look, there's no fear in love. Hebrews 1 says this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known that, but now we do. Jesus is the definitive word. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. He's God in a bod. There's a father reading a newspaper while his son was competing for his attention. And nothing the dad said seemed to keep the boy from his own demands. And so finally the dad noticed a large ad on the newsprint showing a picture of the earth. And so to kind of divert his son's attention, he grabbed some scissors and cut a bunch of pieces out of that earth, laid it out on the table and said, son, put the world back together again. It's a puzzle. It's fun. And dad went back to his own thing. Not, not a moment later, I mean, less than 60 seconds, the boy responded, put it all together, and goes, hey, Dad, I'm done. Dad, what? He goes, how did you do that so fast? He says, well, it was easy. On the back of the picture uh, of the world, there was a man, and once I put the man together, the world came together all by itself. If we get Jesus right, the world comes together. Our worldview and how we are to live our lives becomes much more clear. A.W. Tozer said this, it'll be on the screens, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Isn't that interesting? I think that's true. Whenever we think of God, the first thing that comes to our mind is actually the most important thing, not about God, but about us. How we think of God shapes how we live, shapes our character. There's this ancient uh, story found on a scroll from the centuries just before Christ. And on the scroll was a short story of a woman and her husband. And the husband leaves his house every week to go worship at the temple. And the temple was the temple of Diana. She was a fertility goddess. And so part of worshiping the fertility goddess in that culture was to go into the temple and do your sacred duty of sleeping with a temple prostitute. By sleeping with a temple prostitute, you were doing your duty to that god, to that fertility god. And so the husband would do this every week. And every afternoon as the husband left his wife, she noticed he had this certain look, this certain smile as he said, I'm off to worship at the temple of Diana, so pious. The story on the scroll comes to an end with the husband smiling and waving goodbye one afternoon and his wife saying, if only his gods were different, then he'd be different. Who and what you worship matters. It doesn't just matter in our heads or mentally or theologically. It matters in our lives and how we live. Who are your examples in life? Ask yourself honestly, who do I want to emulate more than anyone else? And if it's not Jesus, we've got to reprioritize some things in our lives. Be honest with yourself. We want to emulate Jesus. It's really simple. Copy Jesus. Copy Jesus. It's, it's simple. First Peter says this. This is amazing. In speaking of Jesus, it says, he is your example and you must follow in his steps. This, the Greek word here for example is the Greek word uh, hupogramos. It means uh, a copy book prepared by a teacher for pupils to copy. It's a copy book. Jesus is our copy book. It is perfect. It is to be, he is to be the, the model that the child tries to trace Jesus is who we copy. He's our copy book. 
If we as followers of Jesus would grab this, what a difference it would make in our world. Every interaction we have with people, every person we see, if we base it on who we find God to be in Christ, this would have intense ramifications. Like when something that bothers you happens at work, it puts you in a bad mood all day, right? You ever been there? You get to work, your boss says, can I see you in my office, please? And then you get blamed for something or they criticize you on something that you worked really hard for and just, oh, it gets you. You go back to your desk, your coffee's cold now. You notice that Toby in HR are slurping his coffee loudly. His is hot. Jim is humming the same song all day long. Your phone won't stop ringing. You distract yourself with busy work, but somehow your stapler is now immersed in jello. Time couldn't move any slower. You get home, you slam the door, and you say, I have had such a bad day. Did you, though? Or was it just a, a, a weird five minutes? And you let it, and you milked it all day long. Jesus is our example, right? Do you see that kind of attitude in Christ? Like, can you imagine Jesus as a grump? Carol spills coffee on your desk. Thanks, Carol. Nice. And they're like, oh, Jesus is in a bad mood today. Someone at work tries to help him with some papers work, and he's like, what will you do it then? No. People in the office are saying, stay away from Jesus. He's a real pill today. No. Listen, if Jesus doesn't fit the scene, neither should we. Look at Philippians 2.5. It says this. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He's our copybook. We follow Jesus above all else. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We love Jesus. We follow Jesus. We, follow, we read the Bible and study the Bible to follow Jesus better. There is a difference. It's not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Word. We love the Scriptures. We read the Scriptures. We study the Scriptures. They're not God. For following Jesus, we pray blessings over our boss after they criticize us. We love our coworkers instead of cursing them. We do everything to love those around us with sacrificial love that costs us something. This is the way of the cross. So what does that look like for you and your, your, your week? Does it mean you call somebody and go to lunch with them? Does it mean you bring donuts for the office? Does it mean you, instead of cursing under your breath, the person who badmouths you behind your back, you pray God's blessing over them instead? This is what it means to follow Jesus. When you're walking in love, you are also not only following Jesus, you're also doing our second core value, which is the kingdom. Kingdom. Whenever I heard kingdom growing up, whenever I read it in the Bible, I thought of, well, it's heaven when we die. The pearly gates when I die. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Great. Jesus talks about it more than anything else, by far. He names it 118 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think when he's describing eternal life in the Gospel of John, I think he's referring to the same thing. This is what Jesus was talking about. It's on one and a half times on every page in Matthew. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. It is a medieval word. And central to the word kingdom is the word king, right? It's about a person at the center. That's, this is why Jesus and kingdom go together. Uh, kingdom, king domain. It's a king's domain. A kingdom is focused on the king. This will be on the screens. A kingdom is the realm in which one's will and one's way hold sway. So if we're talking about the kingdom of God, it's where his way and his will 
hold sway in our own lives, that his opinion matters, that his reign in our lives matters. This is what the kingdom of God looks like when God is in charge. It's the world as it should be. It's the world that God wants it. It's the world we find our hearts yearning for. This is the kingdom of God. And it's not just about heaven when we die. No, it's about here now. It's about bringing God's kingdom here. The job for us as Christians is to help the world be what it's supposed to be. Peace instead of violence. Justice instead of injustice. Compassion instead of indifference. Love instead of hate. This is the call for followers of Christ. And right out of the gate, beginning in his ministry, Jesus begins teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Here's three different verses on here. It says this, Mark, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent means rethink everything. Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, rethink everything. The kingdom of heaven is near. Luke 4, 43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. When I was a Christian growing up, at my church, maybe some of you are familiar with this, we had something called EE. Does anyone know what EE is? Evangelism Explosion. This is what EE is. EE tells us, teaches us, gives us a booklet, gives us some questions on how to evangelize, how to share our faith with other people, in particular, strangers. Whether we go door to door and knock, and knock on doors and talk to people, we use EE techniques. Whether we go to like a river park or like a populated mall and we just go up to random strangers, you would use the techniques that EE gave you. Now, here's the two questions that you're supposed to ask. Many of you Christians know this. You go up to someone, stranger at the mall, he's buying a new hat at Lids, and you've got your, you know, Baskin Robbins there, and you go up to him and you're like, hey, if you were to, you know, if you were to die tonight, where would you go and why? It's a great conversation starter or a way to shut down a conversation. And the second question you would ask is that if the world were to end tomorrow, where would you go and why? All of them to get them to introspectively ask uh, and think about deep spiritual questions. Think about their fear of the afterlife. Think about their fear of death. The very thing that Jesus has squelched in his own ministry and life. Now, I think these, these questions matter, but I've come to the conclusion that they are not the only two questions that matter. That I think along with these questions, there's these questions. If you were to die tonight, if you weren't going to die for another 80 years, what kind of person do you want to become? If the world were not going to end for another 500 years, what kind of world do you want to create? I think these matter as much as the first two. And I think Jesus teaches us. Jesus talks a whole lot more about how we live here on earth than he does about the pearly gates and what happens when we die. I have come to the conclusion, this will be on the screens, that Jesus doesn't call our attention to leaving this world, but to loving this world. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not sucks for all you guys down here on earth. I'm going up to party upstairs with my father. No, 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 no. Jesus cares about this world. He cares about our friends, our family, our neighbors. We limit the kingdom of heaven when we reduce it to heaven when we die. We, I believe this, we, we neuter the power of Jesus' teaching when it all revolves around leaving this world, abandoning this world, and going to the next. 
Reducing the kingdom of God to a singular salvation experience is to miss the beauty, wonder, and adventure we are to be a part of this side of the grave. Salvation's not a one-night stand. It's, it's not a ticket to heaven. Salvation's not a sinner's prayer once prayed once upon a time. I think that matters, and I think something happens there, but it's not, it's not just an equation. No, salvation is what happens when our story intersects with Jesus and it becomes enfolded into his story. Salvation is what continues to happen when we live our lives out of the life that we have in Christ. Salvation is personal and it's social. Salvation is God saving what he has lost, and it's the Lord's salvation. And the Lord's salvation is not an evacuation project. It is a restoration project. He wants to restore Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, he says, God, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. And he's saying, when you pray, you bring that down. Let's, let's let this world become more of my world. Let's bring heaven to earth. How can we do that in our homes? How can we do that in our workplaces? Uh, I always thought that there was just one conversion for the Christian. I'm convinced there are two. It's on the screens. The conversion from the world to Christ, but then also the conversion from Christ back into, into the world to transform it in Jesus' name. So many Christians stop at the first. I'm converted. And, and now I withdraw from everyone and everyone else who doesn't view things like me That's not the way of the gospel. That's not the good news. Here at Prodigal, we're more interested in counting conversations than conversions. This is a football. This is who we are. We're a church that follows the teaching and example of Jesus, and we love him and we follow him. This is a football. We're a church that desires bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Some of us in this room have been a Christian for a while. And we get Christianity and we get the church thing and we truly do love Jesus. And we go to church and we tithe 10% of our income and we avoid all the major sins and we pray. But is there something more? Are we missing something? I would venture to say yes. Yes, we're missing something. And I, I think it's because we have yet to be converted back to the world to change it for Jesus. Uh, we've been converted, and so now we have all the religious language and the religious boundaries that we're supposed to have, and now we're good, and we stay content. It's like this. Uh, uh, did you guys know that sharks are one of the most common and uh, popular aquarium fish? That's weird, right? Uh, but once uh, a friend of mine who had a shark in his aquarium told me that, that once you catch a shark and you confine it in a small, stay, a small uh, aquarium, it will stay a size proportionate to its surroundings. So you could catch a shark and it could be maybe 6 to 12 inches long and it will be full grown. But if you were to release it out into the wild it could grow to its normal six feet and beyond. I think that many Christians are like those tiny little sharks, tiny little baby sharks, right? We've got our aquarium, 
And we're cute. We're, we're little six-inch sharks staying in our nice little aquarium when God has called us to the wild ocean where there's waves and there's monsters below and there's people and there's all kinds of adventure where there's compassion and mercy and justice and love and people who are different than you that we are called to go and love, not judge. That's what God's calling us to. So maybe that's you. You just haven't been converted back to the world and Jesus says, do it. It's awesome. It's wild. It's an adventure, but you got me. Uh, I want to call Noe and the band up and we're going to close with this song. Uh, when my daughter was born, uh, man, it, you know, we had done it before. And so like, uh, you know, having a kid and, and so as she was getting bigger and stuff, you know, it was, it was this, you know, it's exciting and like, okay, she, oh, she's kicking, she's moving. And, uh, and we were really excited. We were really excited. And then when, when, when she, she was born in May 28th, of 2017, oh, we were so happy. We were thrilled. Uh, but, you know, we didn't, and we celebrated. It was a, we had a party, and we had friends and family, and, and uh, man, we were, we were thrilled. But we didn't stay in the hospital and just stay focused in on her birth. No, we went home, and we uh, gave her milk. And then we eventually uh, taught her to, to eat uh, like rice cereal with a spoon. And then we had to, sometimes had to become like an airplane. Sometimes we had to sing. Sometimes we had to go <gasps> and, get them, and stick it in there. And then, and then, and then uh, we, we taught her to roll over on, from back to, to, to belly, to belly, to back. And then we taught her how to walk. And it, we didn't stay in the hospital because the joy of my daughter is found in the new life, not just in the birth. And for us as Christians, we stay focused in on the birth. We started the race. And we're like, yes, I started a race. And we get a Bible study of people who go, we're all race starters. And no, 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 there's a purpose. We're called to run. And we're supposed to be running. We're supposed to be making a difference in our world, in our families. And so, yes, you started a race. And that is a good, beautiful, true, wonderful, godly, Christ-like thing. But don't stay at the starting line. Let's keep running. And let's run faster. And let's grow closer to Jesus and make a difference for him and his kingdom May it come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stand and worship the King of Kings. This is a football. This is a football. Let's love God. Let's love people. Let's just see what happens as we continue to follow the creator of the universe. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for giving us these footballs today. Lord, we pray today that as we worship and as we close our time together by singing praise that your kingdom will show. Build your kingdom here with us, God. Change the atmosphere now. Let miracles happen now. And bring us closer into your presence. In your mighty name we all say, amen. Atmosphere is changing now. Come on, you know it. Let's sing. For the Spirit of the Lord is here. Yes, He is. The evidence.
dances all around. Sing it out, church.